All right, and hello and welcome back. We have a special presentation today, a second year physical therapy student from the prestigious Howard University is here to give a in-service for her student affiliation on um, the rotator cuff and some conservative treatment and interventions for it. Um, Gabby has been working at the Pivot Physical Therapy location in Olney for the past eight weeks now. Hopefully has learned a thing or two and is ready to share some information with all of you. How are you doing today, Gabby? Pretty good. How are you? Oh, I am in my happy place right now, recording <laughs> things, learning things, and talking about physical therapy. These are my comfort zone. So this is going to be good. All right. So what do you have for us today? Maybe we can take your slides and we can angle them this way. Can you talk like that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, hi everyone listening. As you said, my name is Gabrielle Wilson. I am a second year DPT student from Howard University. I chose to do my in-service on the effectiveness of conservative treatments and interventions for rotator cuff tears. This topic was interesting to me because as being a student, um, we learn a certain formula. Patients have surgery, they do PT afterwards, and then they move on with the rest of their lives. Being in clinic these past eight weeks, I've seen the opposite. I've seen patients come in who have elected not to have surgery on rotator cuff tears, and they look the same, if not better, than patients who have the surgery. Mm. So in um, the experience we've had so far, um, those patients that we've evaluated, how many of them have been full thickness rotator cuff tears versus some kind of potential rotator cuff tendon pathology or partial tear of rotator cuff? So I think that a lot of what we saw was partial tears, um, mm -hmm. but we didn't have like imaging to really confirm that. And I do, I will talk about, you know, the types of tears later on in my presentation and what each tear is considered, like the size wise. Um, Good. So yeah, we didn't even know what we were treating because we couldn't right. image their shoulders. Right. <laughs> didn't really see those things. Huh. They still got better. All right. All right. So, basic anatomy of the rotator cuff, you have four muscles that make up the rotator cuff, um, three of which insert onto the greater tubercle of the humerus, through supraspinatus, infraspinatus, and teres minor. The only rotator cuff muscle that inserts onto the lesser tubercle is your subscapularis. Supraspinatus originates from the supraspinous fossa, in charge of abduction of the arm. Infraspinatus and teres minor are your external rotators. Infraspinatus originates from the infraspinous fossa, Teres minor originates from the lateral border of the, sca of the scapula. Are these related to the supra and infraspinatus at all? <laughs> tomatoes, tomatoes. Tomatoes, tomatoes. Fair enough. Subscapularis <laughs> originates from the subscapular fossa and is your internal rotator of your arm. Lovely. Together, these muscles stabilize the glenoral humeral joint by depressing the head of the humerus when performing abduction of the arm. Very good. Seems important. Also, all right. So when we're talking about the rotator cuff, there are tears and/or lesions. They go by either name. You have a partial or an incomplete tear, full thickness tear, or an incomplete tear as well. A partial tear is defined as damage to the tendon, but it's not completely separated from the bone. Um, patients who have this will present with weakness, and if they have full range of motion, it could be painful. Their painful arc would also be positive. So painful arc is anywhere from 60 degrees of abduction to about 120 degrees of abduction. For full thickness tears, you have complete separation from bone and tendon. 
Patients will present with a positive drop arm, the inability to raise their arm overhead, sudden weakness. When we're talking about these types of tears, they are classified by size. So a small tear is considered to be less than one centimeter. A medium tear is one to three centimeters. A large tear is three to five centimeters. And anything larger than five centimeters is considered to be a massive tear. So because all clinics are direct access, we do have special tests that we can use to identify full thickness tears. To name a few, we have drop arm, empty can, and full can. When we're talking about these special tests, sensitivity and specificity are what immediately should come to everyone's mind. Um, sensitivity and specificity are ideally you would like to have them as close to 100% as possible, but nothing's ever truly certain in PT without other imaging. <laughs> Um, so when we're talking about sensitivity, it's defined as the true positive. It's the portion of patients that have the pathology that the tests identify as positive. Specificity is a true negative. It's the portion of patients who have the pathology that, or don't have the pathology that the patient identifies as not having it. Okay, so uh, obviously it would be ideal if, if every special test we did had 100% sensitivity, 100% specificity. Right. So that's pretty rare. Correct. Uh, I don't know if that actually exists in the real world. But <laughs> if you could only have one, and we're talking about full thickness rotator cuff tears, if you could only have one, sensitivity or specificity, which one would you want? I would want the true positive. Um, so that would be the sensitivity. I would want the sensitivity to be higher. Mm -hmm. um, that and why is that? You're definitely sure that this person has this. It's very sure that you can rule it in that they have this. Well, sensitive tests are probably good for ruling out things if it's a negative, right? They flip the, yeah, yeah, that's all right. But you want to make sure that you don't, you know, miss anyone. Right. So highly sensitive test is nice because you're not going to miss anybody who does have the condition. The true positive rate is high. Right. So you might have some false positives in there. But in this case, that's uh, better because then yeah, that's, that's okay because they, they can go get imaging of the shoulder and find out that there's a false positive. That's okay. You, make, you don't want anyone to test negative on the test, your clinical test, mm -hmm. and get missed. And we just think that they you know, don't, don't have, have a full it. thickness here. Right. Yeah, so like with a screening test for serious medical pathology like this, well, not, I don't know, serious. Well, it's serious, but you know, grading of serious, right? I would say that you know, the sensitivity is more important. I agree with you. So when we're talking about the sensitivity and specificity, um, each of these tests have certain numbers that have uh, been run through Physiopedia. Um, for drop arm, you have sensitivity of 7.8%. Specificity is 97.2. Empty cans test uh, sensitivity was 88.6. Specificity was 58.8. Full can for patients who present it with pain range from sensitivity being 44% to 100%, and specificity range from 50 to 99%. With full can with patients who presented with just weakness, the sensitivity dropped to 77% and the specificity 68%. So from those numbers, you can kind of see that they're not super reliable <laughs> in identifying full thickness tears, which mm. is why you shouldn't just use these tests to identify, you should use you know, range of motion, manual muscle testing, palpation, all of these things in combination to identify what your patient presents with. That sounds very reasonable. Awesome. So when we're talking about who are generally affected by rotator cuff tears, you have patients who are between the ages of 30 to 50 years old, typically males on their dominant side, 
patients who've had injury to this region before. And this number goes up with age. So I have two studies here. Um, Ginwa et al. reported that patients older than 60 years are two times as likely to develop a tear that will likely to progress to full thickness or a larger tear. Yamaguchi et al. estimated that the prevalence of full thickness tears bilaterally at 35% and that increases as high as 50% in those over the age of 60. So you're saying that people over the age of 60, 50% of them have some kind of full thickness bilateral rotator cuff tear. It is estimated. Estimated. Yes. I, I'm not stating that for oh, a fact. It's something you read. It's something that I read. I thought it was interesting, thought I would share. Huh. So are half of people over the age of 60 in physical therapy? No. No, they're not. Why is that? Um, because some of these some rotator cuff tears are manageable on their own or people don't even notice that they have them. Oh. Asymptomatic. Asymptomatic. Okay. Um, other people who are at risk for these uh, rotator cuff tears are people who do overhead activity, repeated overhead activity, uh, construction workers, Amazon packagers. These activities can damage the rotator cuff over time. This is not a guarantee that if you have these type of jobs, you will have a rotator cuff tear. It just puts you in a more likely percentage to get one. Um, 50%, 50 to 70% of shoulder dysfunctions seen by clinicians are related to conditions of the rotator cuff according to McGee. When we're talking about current protocol, currently there are no clinical practice guidelines for the treatment of the rotator cuff, according to the American Physical Therapy Association, or the APTA. However, there are protocols, conservative protocols, from sports orthopedic specialists and a clinic called Marshbrook Rehab, who have come up with conservative treatments, and both of those programs focus on scapular stability, rotator cuff strengthening, mobility, and proprioception of the shoulder. When we start talking about the research, there is a consensus that rotator cuff tears are, or conservative treatments for rotator cuff tears are appropriate within the first six to 12 weeks with patients who are under the age of 16 and don't have a traumatic tear. However, within that, if they don't respond in the first initial four to six weeks to conservative treatment, it may be time to look at another, another intervention for it, such as a surgical transition or an injection of some kind. Also, when we're talking about the research, I read a lot of articles. And <laughs> in those articles, the only thing that all of them could consistently say was that rotator, conservative treatment for rotator cuff tears is to improve pain, function, and reduce disability. So what is conservative treatment? Conservative treatment is just a non-surgical approach to it. Okay, so what things could fall under that umbrella? So you have physical therapy as one, anti-inflammatory medications, cortisone injections, um, strengthening programs, which kind of falls into physical therapy as well. But those are a couple. Okay. Um, this topic has been long debated amongst our physical therapy community as to whether this is an effective way to treat it. In 2016, I looked at an article. I looked at four articles. This was the first one. In 2016, there was a systematic review done by Anessa Roysa. She, she assessed the effectiveness of surgery versus conservative management for rotator cuff tears. In that trial, she, did, she chose three randomized trials. The first group, she chose to do one-year follow-up, and then she chose again to look at them again in five years. 
The second trial, she chose to use a small sample size. She looked at 56 participants in one group and nine in the other group. And then overall, she tracked a variety of outcomes. She tracked patient irritability, severity of symptoms, effects of their daily function, dosage, and duration of treatment. Looking at all of that information, she was unable to find any statistical difference between any of those groups to review her patient outcomes. So do you think that's interesting that she had small sample sizes and looked at a multitude of outcomes and still didn't find anything that met statistical significance? Do you think if you wanted to set your study up to find statistical significance, that's exactly what you do. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think it was very interesting that even with all of those things to kind of make it in her favor, she still wasn't able to find a, any difference between those groups. Um, so I, I think that kind of leads into one, one narrative of saying that conservative treatment is just as effective as surgery is. Ah, so here's a, here's a question to follow up on those. Were those patients um, randomized into surgery versus non-surgery, or were they allowed to select? And these were in the. I think they were. I believe they were allowed to select, which is why you had one group that chose the fifty-six and the other group that right. was nine. So, what potential confounding factor could letting patients decide what treatment they want provide to a study that's looking at how well they do with the thing that they chose? So you have some patients who. Not to say they aren't fit for surgery, but they have risk factors that put them at a more increased chance of not performing well after their surgery. So I know for rotator cuff tears, if patients have diabetes, if they smoke, if they have hypertension, mm -hmm. all of those risk factors put you at a more, uh, what's the word? You're at a, you're at a disadvantage almost. You don't get, you're not going to perform as well as somebody who didn't do those things. It doesn't mm -hmm. have those things. Right. Negative prognostic factors. Thank you. Um, so I do think that that definitely played a role in it. I think um, if she had opened up the study to a much larger group um, and not necessarily let them choose which ones they have, but just kind of like just from grabbing people, mm -hmm. uh, I feel like you may have been able to get a little better. Also, I think that in her first trial, she chose to look at patients one year and versus five years post-op, that's that's a huge difference. A lot of things can happen in that time. Right. I would say one-year follow-up, five-year follow-ups are very different kind of studies. Um, I would add then that when you let patients self-select their treatment, the likelihood of that having a positive outcome is always going to be higher than if they're randomized into something. Um, unless you control for any previous um, expectations, um, preconceptions that mm -hmm. patients have, because if you survey a patient ahead of time and say, like, hey, what do you think will make you feel better, surgery or physical therapy? And they respond, oh, I think surgery will make me feel better. And then you randomize them into the PT group. That could also lead to a negative outcome. They might have a negative outcome. Whereas if you randomize them into the surgery outcome, that might bias the fact that they might have a better outcome even than the surgery itself could have provided. Agree. But what's our issue with randomizing people into surgery or non-surgery? Um, <laughs> when you randomize them, you're not necessarily getting like the correct population into those like each of those groups. Um, okay. Well, what's the correct population to do surgery or non-surgery? Well, there is no correct because everyone uh, has surgery yeah. every time. <laughs> so that's that's not it. Um. But I think that when you do randomize them, it's 
it's a makes for a better trial to a certain extent. Uh-huh. I know you did talk it about like, those, trial. those patient expectations, but uh-huh. it's not a bias. You don't, as an author or that person running the study, you're not putting them in a bias to help your results out when you right. randomize it. Yeah. But why don't we randomize these kind of trials? I guess is more my question. Why don't we? Yeah. Because of key hacking and well, parking. Did you want to prove a significant uh, difference in these studies? Oh, see, so putting this on the researchers. Um, I um, I think you know, like we could definitely blame you know researchers saying like, hey, we're trying to create you know effect here, so therefore we're not going to randomize this part. But I think um, the probably was like it's it's patients. Patient yeah. preference. Because these are patients. You're taking away their choice, and part of being a patient is you have rights. Right. And in the study, they can refuse to do certain. Yeah, things. we have ethical boards that review our studies, and right. pay, and if um, patients want surgery, and we randomize them to a group that doesn't get surgery, there's a bit of an ethical conundrum there. Right, and the patient has the right to not do that trial anymore at any point during the. Right, so that that's how we deal with these studies because there are some that randomize people into what you know an intervention you know that might not be the one they would have selected for themselves. Um, the way that we get around that ethically is intention to treat, which is the fact that after you complete the study, we promise we'll give you the, the other intervention, right? That's done with a lot of placebo trials. It's like, mm-hmm. hey, we're going to give you the placebo, but after the study's over, we're going to give you the real thing. Okay. Um, but that, when you do that, it makes it harder to do those longer follow-ups because right. you don't want to say like, oh, we'll give you surgery, but not until after that five-year follow-up. Boom, right? right? That's kind of right, a long time. situation. <laughs> um, so yeah, these situations are kind of uh, kind of difficult to get around sometimes. Agree. Um, as we talked about earlier, there are different ways to treat conservatively for rotator cuff tears. We talked about physical therapy, the anti-inflammatory medications, and cortisone injections. Mm-hmm. For those of you who don't know, cortisone injections are a mixture of cortisone and lidocaine, which can take away your pain immediately within minutes of the injection. It's usually placed in the subacromial space, um, just above your rotator cuff. Um, but contrary to what people believe, this is not a fix-all method. If you are having numerous injections, this is a sign that you might need to have a further examination on your shoulder because you could be masking a problem that needs further attention. So I looked at another article, my second article which was in April of 2016, Peter Edwards performed a literature review of non-operative management of the rotator cuff. Um, the non-operative is just another way to say conservative. In that study, he took three groups. So a little background about the study first. He looked at it and he, was, he looked at all the literature pertaining to conservative rotator cuff tears. He saw that patients who have a surgical repair of the tendon are more likely to have a repeat tear at the surgical site. And he looked at group one. Group one was people who have had a full thickness tear, had surgery to it, and now they've torn it again, and they're going to start with conservative treatment. Group two, they've only had one surgical repair. First tear, surgical intervention. Group three were patients who have tears but have never had surgery for it, and they've done prolonged conservative treatment of their rotator cuff tear. In that study, he stated that patients who responded well, their conservative treatment would be effective up to two years. In that same study, Tanaka et al. identified four factors that seemed to correlate with the successful rate for people indicating that they would be good 
good patients for conservative treatment. Those four factors were preserved external rotation of greater than 52 degrees, a negative impingement sign, little or no atrophy of the supraspinatus muscle, and a preserved intramuscular tendon of the supraspinatus. Hmm. With those, she stated that 87% of cases who presented with three out of four of those factors, they were indicated that this is a good, good measure, good gold standard benchmark for patients to have if they're going to respond to conservative treatment. How do they measure the atrophy? In that study, I think they compared it bilaterally. Uh, so there was no like... Imaging? Yeah, it was... Taking it was, a cross-sectional of the muscle? Huh. That's cool. I thought it was. I also thought it was cool how they wanted to look at the intramuscular tendon. Right. Yeah. Um, in my third study, percent of people that had three of those factors had a good outcome with conservative treatment. Yes. Okay. So man, we could definitely use, use some that. of that information. Right. To figure out which of our patients would be the ones who are going to have a better outcome in conservative management, and maybe the ones who don't have those factors. Right. Maybe they won't have as good of an outcome, or should we recommend them for surgery? Uh, I feel like it depends patient to patient. It depends. Right. Or can we recommend surgery? Uh, no, that's not it. <laughs> no, not it. Not for us. So Sanaka et al. also did her own literature review. And in that literature review, she found that conservative treatment is effective 33% to 88% of the time. So that one was a little more iffy, 33%, 88%. It's a very, very wide range with that number. Um, the fourth review that I looked at was a 2017 Ainsworth et al. He conducted a systematic review of exercise therapy for conservative management of rotator cuff tears. His conclusion was that PT may have some benefit, however, the amount of benefit that it have he has he was unsure about pertaining to his outcome measures that he tracked. So he tracked the distinguished uh, in, sorry, distinguished extent of patient pain in relation to the tear as well as the level of intensity and duration of exercise. He couldn't find whether it was whether those things were correlated to the amount of like to the amount of treatment they were receiving. Uh, so the dosage of exercise, so doing more exercise, doing harder exercise, um, more intense, more frequent exercises, so maybe um, patients doing exercise more often during the week, or just longer sets, longer reps, higher weights, didn't necessarily correlate with better outcome. Right. But he also tried to look at the extent of like how large their tear was, mm -hmm. but it, that also didn't make any sense to him as well, because... I think it's for the amount of patients that he chose, I think the sample size was too small. Okay, yeah, it's really hard to do subgroup analysis when you have smaller sample sizes. So in that study, did they also, did they assess strength change over the time? So, so he, did, was there a dosage um, effect to that? Like the people who exercise more, did they get stronger? So they did, but he so he looked at changes in 3, 6, and 12 months. Okay. And in by 12 months, there was no difference between any of those groups. In the strength. In the strength. No matter how much exercise they did. The strength, 12 months, range, motion, all of those things were all the same by, by 12 months. How about that? Right. Um, he used the Oxford shoulder score as his primary outcome measure. Hmm. And he chose to use a placebo control trial 
which was 60 patients with radiology confirming massive tears. Mm. Um, yeah, it's very interesting. Um, he, <laughs> I, <laughs> it was interesting. I think that... A lot of weight on your shoulders, huh? Yeah. <sighs> the, um, the changes that he tried to track, I think within the first three months, there was a difference between patients who um, chose to do the conservative treatment and then the placebo group. But then again, by 12 months, there was no difference. And I think by six months, they were kind of caught up as well. Okay. So how much value? Like how it's really hard to um, hash out sometimes. You know, I, I define value as the benefit divided by like the cost. And for physical therapy, um, we oftentimes think of cost as just a financial cost, you know, that there is a, you know, copay or a coinsurance and like that financial cost. But physical therapy also has like a time requirement. If you're coming like two times, three times a week, like that's, you know, maybe three hours, you know, with travel time, right. you know, out of your week that you're committing to physical therapy. You're also doing a home exercise plan, right? Patients that are listening, you're doing your home <laughs> exercise plan regularly. Um, so doing that, that is a time requirement. There's also some mental and emotional um, components in there too, because you're a patient, you're getting help from somebody else. You know, there's you know mental and emotional feelings that go along with that that are really hard to quantify. Right. So all those costs, and then you're saying that there is some benefit in pain and disability at three months, right? So enough to find significance. Uh, I don't think it was enough to find significance. Enough, so it wasn't enough to find significance. There was some some change, but not enough to find statistical significance. And then at six and 12 months... There was no difference. No difference. Right. Um, so whether you exercise a lot, whether you exercise a little, doing something, right? No additional benefit. So like, why spend the additional time? Why incur the additional cost? You're not potentially going to get all that much more benefit. Well, I think it comes down to, like, not losing what you have as well. Uh, okay. um, if you're just not going to move your shoulder, it's definitely going to get worse. Like, mm. that's, you're definitely going to have atrophy. You're, you're not going to have as Ooh, much. Ooh, and atrophy was a predictor of what? Atrophy was the predictor for um, whether you had a successful outcome yeah. in conservative treatment. Right. We so, want a successful outcome. Right. So preserving any type of range, mm. strength that you do have is important. Those those four things that we talked about, like that's important right. to, to right. saying that conservative care is important. Because we want to arm our patients well. Right. <laughs> oh, that was bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So, what does all this literature mean? Uh, for our listeners, uh, we have a in this slide we have a great GIF, um, very common meme of a uh, young uh, female. Uh, girl, probably age three to four, that's doing the, I don't know, <laughs> shrug. It's adorable. <laughs> so when our, when our research is inconclusive, like this was, there was a range of topics. Um, it doesn't make it bad literature. It just means that we need to look at our patients in total, and we need to funnel through and use current literature, patient expectations, and our own clinical expertise in order to treat more efficiently and effectively. Um, 
<laughs> so basically what you're trying to say is physical therapy is always better than getting surgery every time physical therapy is awesome. No, I, I did not say that. Oh, okay. You're trying to say is getting surgery is always better, always going to make the patient better, and surgery is awesome. No, I'm not saying that either. <laughs> what I'm saying is that every patient is different, and we have to treat them as individuals and not as a group. Um, you have patients who will present similarly, but that does not mean that you treat them the same. Ah. Um, some patients need their arms to do way more than other patients need them to do. So surgery might be a better outcome for people who need to do like, you know, more overhead activities or something else that conservative care just isn't getting for them. Right. And also patients who want surgery might be good surgical candidates. Too. Right. Maybe. <laughs> I think that's a good point. Oh boy, right? Right. But the ones who want to come to PT, the ones who want to avoid surgery, they're probably going to get better with PT rather than surgery. Right. Mm. It just really it really depends on the patient and what they expect to get out of physical therapy or their surgery, what they expect their shoulder to do afterwards. Well, we have all the best patients here, so they should do great. You have great patients. <laughs> they find my shoulder jokes humorous. Oh, I'm going to miss this. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Gabby, for a uh, great presentation on this. Um, we are definitely um, going to be posting this to some fun places around the company. Um, so audiences will be listening in their free time. And if you have uh, further questions for Gabby, um, feel free to send them my way. I will then forward them on to her. So I can be reached on Twitter at um, OTF Physio. Um, I could also be reached through our company email for you pivot people at awiseman at pivoths.com. So you can send me emails that way. Um, thank you very much for this presentation. I think we, uh, you know, we learned that there was some ambiguity, but we, I think we learned, uh, we learned a lot. I think I did as well. All right, very good. Um, thank you very much for working so hard on this rotation and on this insert. It's uh, much appreciated. Thank you. All right, and goodbye, all.